Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where jiu-jitsu practitioners open their minds to new ideas and concepts about personal development, entrepreneurship, jiu-jitsu, and life. Our mission is to inspire, impact, and or improve your life in some way to support you during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to episode 124. I'm your host, Gustavo Dantas, and today we have Todd Fox. You hear the full intro in a little bit, but Todd is a third degree black belt in jiu-jitsu. He is the author of the book, Protection for and from Humanity. And he's the owner of Tour Protection, which is a company focused on providing protection service for celebrities and VIPs. So we talk about his background, jiu-jitsu in the 90s, street awareness, sketchy situations. So a really cool interview. So stick around. Now I want to share a message with you. And first of all, as you already know, I have two podcasts I have in English and Portuguese. And often I kind of bounce some ideas back and forth of some of the things that guests in the other podcast said, and I bring it back and back and forth. So with that said, I want to ask you something first. It's a question for you to reflect, which is what is one of the most meaningful accomplishments that you have ever achieved in your life? That doesn't have to do with athletics or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's just could be your college degree. It doesn't matter. Something that was extremely meaningful to you. And every time you accomplish something meaningful, you know that it didn't just kind of land on your lap, not doing anything, suddenly something landed there. And chances are that you had to stay focused for quite some time, discipline for quite some time, and be patient. Now, why am I saying these three words? So back to my Portuguese vlog, I had a topic one, one time that I did in a series of videos that was called FB, become an FDP to become successful. So FDP in English should be equivalent to SOB. So I just kind of play with the words and stuff like that and did a video about this. So I'm just bringing this concept to you guys about the focus, the discipline, and the patience, because I did have an interview last week, and one of the guests talked about the patience. So it kind of inspired me to share this with you. I had the opportunity to interview the UFC, UFC lightweight champion, Charles Oliveira. For people who don't know, he's Brazilian. He just recently won the title against Michael Chandler about maybe a month ago from when I'm recording. And... I had the opportunity to interview him last week, which was awesome because, man, the guy is all over the place, the news and everywhere in Brazil and a lot of attention. So it's cool for him to give the time for like a small podcast, basically, to share his, um, his experience and stuff like that, which was awesome. And during the conversation, uh, we talk about, for people who don't know, he got an UFC in 2010. So from 2010 to, I believe, 2017, he had 10 wins, eight losses. He had one no contest. So it was a roller coaster, you know, win here, lose, win, win, lose, lose. And since 2018, he has been 9-0 and, and then won the title. So I was asking him, 
man, what was that click that made you suddenly just kind of like, boom, really take off that got your, got your confidence going? So first she said that how was dealing with uh, mentally with all that stuff of being a 10 and eight and have the highs and lows. And he mentioned about patience because he knew he said, I was, I just had a conviction that my time would come. I wasn't peak yet in my career and I was still learning a lot, but I knew that I just had to be patient. And then I asked, what was the moment that you, you really felt your confidence kind of like going up? And it was very interesting, his answer, because he mentioned it was after his last loss. And he mentioned that there was the same, around the same time his daughter was born. And for people who don't know Charles Oliveira, he comes from the, the favelas, Brazil, the, the slums. So man, tough, tough areas. So his goal, basically since he started like provide a good life to his family and he started with jiu-jitsu he's a jiu-jitsu black belt he competed in jiu-jitsu with the gi his whole life and then eventually he moved he migrated to to mma but his inspiration was like to provide a, a good life to his family and then when his daughter was born he said like you know his motivation his why just got you know so much stronger than now and i really need to to get it, but not like pressuring himself is just really getting helping him to believe more that like everything that I've been doing all this time is not in vain. I have to be patient and and I'll get there. And that's what happened. So now my question to you is do you do you even know your why? You know, maybe you have a goal or a dream that you're striving for, and maybe you're going through some tough times right now. Are you able to stay focused? Are you able to stay disciplined? And that's one of the things that when things get tougher, basically your why is gonna give you that feel to keep going. And that's basically what happened with, with Charles Oliveira, having that extra motivation that why just kept pushing it, kept helping give him strength to, to be patient, to eventually get to his goal. So that brings back to you, how patient have you been? with you go whatever if you're doesn't matter if you're an entrepreneur or not or or an athlete or not but you got to believe that your time will come and just keep putting the work staying focused disciplined for a long time easy than said we all want quick results but one of the biggest lessons that i got in jiu-jitsu that i learned from competing that i always think about is and if you train jiu-jitsu you know exactly what i'm talking about you don't always get exactly the the outcome that you want at the time that you want the way you want it's not like that so you have to be patient keep putting the work and that is the main message to you today like if you're on, on grind for your meaningful goal there's no other way around you're gonna have to stay focused and disciplined for quite some time whatever uh, bigger goals of course longer you have to stay disciplined and patient to believe that is going to happen. So now stay tuned with Todd Fox interview. Was, let me introduce you to today's guest, Todd Fox. Todd is a third degree black belt under Rodrigo Vaghi. Todd has competed professionally in MMA, gi and ogi competitions. He's also a former Marine who has spent his career in executive protection with his company, Tour Protection who provides world-class protection service to celebrities and VIPs. 
in the summer of 2020, after two decades of training the military and law enforcement communities, he opened Faceline X, his training for private U.S. citizens. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Yes, sir. So you, you mentioned that you are in St. Louis? I am. I'm based out, me personally, I'm based out of St. Louis. All our guys are kind of scattered across the country. Okay, so we're recording this in June 2021. How's the situation, COVID situation in your in your area? Um, it's probably like most of the country. It's kind of uh, become political. So where you see the epicenters of people in, in Missouri, where I'm at, is St. Louis and Kansas City. Um, and the cities are, they skew to one side. And so they're very protective and, and mask mandates are very heavy and social distancing. And then if you go toward the center, which is more rural community, it's completely open and, and they didn't have anything. So it depends on where you're at between St. Louis and Kansas City. But uh, things are obviously opening back up everywhere. And, and it's no exception here. Things are starting to loosen up a little bit. All right, so yeah, let's start from the beginning. Just tell us how martial arts got into your life and then eventually jujitsu and fighting, but how, uh, how young were you when you got exposed to martial arts? Uh, I was in junior high and I started with, with karate, which initially started as kind of Kempo karate. Uh, and there was a judo component, a guy that taught judo as well. And then it morphed into kind of Kyokushinkai. Um, and then probably 10 years into martial arts, the guy that I was training with um, found out that uh, Rodrigo Vaghi was in St. Louis, and this is like 95 time frame. And he's like, man, you got to go train with Rodrigo. You know, he's a Hicks and Gracie black belt. He's, he's a competitor. I can't show you what he can show you. You know, go, go over there and learn that magic. Learn the stuff those guys are doing because it works. And, um, and then while I was training jujitsu, probably maybe – seven or eight years ago then I started Muay Thai as well on top of it so um, I guess it's been close to about 30 some odd years since 32 years since I started training martial arts and 25 or six for jiu-jitsu right on and then when did competition especially back then I've been here in the U.S. I arrived here in January 99 so back then there's not as many competitions especially in the in the mid you know because even in Brazil people don't know but the the Brazilian Federation officially started in 94, you know, and so some of the tournaments are coming after in, in the U.S. Around, around that time. So, of course, there are not as many. So how was for you getting involved with the competitions back then? Yeah, so um, you're, you're absolutely right. In the Midwest, where I'm at, very little in the way of jiu-jitsu-specific competitions. There was a lot of wrestling. So they're great, great college wrestlers because you think about um, you have Oklahoma here, you have Nebraska here, you have Ohio here. Uh, a lot of the best wrestling is here in the Midwest. So you had a lot of like no gi and even submission wrestling comp competitions early on, but you didn't have a lot of gi jiu-jitsu. And when you did, it was pretty much white belts and occasionally a blue belt. And so you had to travel for competitions to the East Coast or West Coast. Um, but around 99 timeframe, uh, while I was in the Marines, I had to move to California. And obviously, because Rodrigo came from Hickson, he sent me to train with Hickson's. Uh, so I was at Hickson's training with him. And that was really easy in California. I know you're in the Phoenix area uh, and now there's a ton of competition there, but you know, there was nothing at the time like California, even New York wasn't online with California. So once I got out there, it was really easy to get into, you know, the U S open or, or nationals or Pan Ams, all that stuff was there. Um, the only thing it wasn't was worlds. And that was because it was in Brazil, but as you know, there's a lot more money to be made in the States. So 
when it transitioned over, obviously it came here, but um, I started probably within six months of being with Rodrigo fighting in No Holds Barred, NHB or Valley Tudo. Um, so I got a very quick taste of, of what it was like to transition from traditional martial arts to kind of more combat focused martial arts. And how was for you mentally going into this kind of like right now, you know what to expect the MMA, but back then, man, you you have no idea what to put yourself into it, no, you know. So how no. was it mentally? Well, I always tell guys, like when I first came to jujitsu, I had beaten a lot of guys in in striking, like karate or uh, boxing. When I came to jujitsu, I had like this fifteen year old kid kick my ass, and so I was like, oh my god, what is this? And then they started with. Um, the NHB and, and NHB at the time in the Midwest was illegal. So you either had to do it in one of the few states where it was legal or you had to do it on an Indian reservation. So I was like, whoa, what is this crazy stuff? And I didn't really understand at the time that I was doing it, how new it was, right? Because for Rodrigo, you know, he had come from that background with, with uh, Hickson and so it was normal. And so I just thought I entered into something that was normal, which obviously wasn't the case. So it was very cool. Uh, it was very unique, and it and it definitely opened my eyes to the reality of of kind of fighting and some of the stuff we were doing that maybe wasn't as realistic, and some of the potential uh, for things to occur, like the layers in fighting and the distances and kind of how things change as as you move through phases. Yeah, it's interesting talking about evolution. Um, I was talking to someone this week about I like to watch surfing, and then if you look back. Jiu-jitsu 20 years ago, surfing 20 years ago, it's, it's crazy, skateboarding, MMA, man, it was just so crazy, just so, so different, you know what I mean, the, all the things, and I remember, let me, so we have UFC 1993, so the first event I was able to watch, uh, and that's, uh, a lot of people don't know, but that's what it did before the UFC, that's what kind of like give this snap in, in Brazil, especially in Rio to grow was the 1991 uh, Vale in Brazil Jiu-Jitsu against Luta Livre, that Fabio Gorgel fought, Murilo yes. Bussamante and Valige. Yes. And that was in my neighborhood. I was uh, I was outside, I was like, how old was I? Um, I think it was maybe 18 or something, I was 17, I can't remember, but I was outside. What neighborhood was that, buddy? What, what that was uh, Grajaú. In, in, Rio, in Rio de Janeiro. And so I used I, I lived like literally 15 minutes walking, you know, from the, the venue. So I went there, I couldn't get in because it was so, uh, so packed, like thousands of like hardcore jujitsu people because there was very niche. No one, people really didn't know until even that point in Brazil, people think that everyone knew about jujitsu. Not really. It was still kind of like underground, strong base in Rio, but other states are, uh, very small who was fighting on the other side was it like uh Hugo duarte yeah like uh hugo hugo was supposed to fight uh, marcelo bearing and then marcelo got got injured so he wasn't able to fight but there was eugenia tadeo which was uh, oh yes yes tough tough dude very tough man old school that fought valige was the first fighter of the night it was man it was just um it was intense uh intense experience but i tell you what after that that's when you just wasn't a map in Brazil because they show on TV, the biggest channel in Brazil is called Global. They didn't show live, but it was kind of like hour and a half after the event happened. 
So I'm anxious waiting at home with my VCR ready to record, you know. And the funny thing is that the commentator, uh, supposedly they said like, hey, you're not allowed to, it has to be open hand. You cannot uh, uh, fist and they're like, okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, because you're worried about a TV, man. As soon as it start the fight, oh, head butts and punches, and they're like, "Well, this." And after that, basically, the guy who was able to manage this for the TV got fired. They didn't have, uh, well, it wasn't MMA, but it was Valitura. They didn't have anything like that on TV on Global until basically the MMA era when the money start flowing because they just got they were just traumatized and what they saw was they were like, "Oh my God!" Because there's like literally those two 15 minute rounds. Uh, um, I think that's what there was it, and that's what really put jujitsu on map, start getting stronger. And then when '93 came around, and then got a lot stronger, but it was already getting stronger from '91, and then the creation of the federation in 1994, and then Worlds in '96, and then so forth. But man, it was uh, just looking back, you know, I always. Like when I teach some of the self-defense classes, you know, some of the things that we do in our academy, I like to show footage and I show them like UFC one. I was like, all right, raise your hands if you have never seen them. Like, man, I'm old. These people have never watched UFC one. So I got to do a little history lesson to them and share with them. Like, look what this guy's doing here. This Very is Jiu-Jitsu 101. It gets no better than this. You double leg, you close this, you know, like you control it. So that was a... That was incredible. So how you see, you know, it's, it's cool for you to see too, how you see this evolution of what was back then, you know, in martial arts and now. Yeah, I, it, it is interesting. I agree with you, all, all that stuff, because that's kind of how I came up too. what you're referencing with the guys and who the guys that were training me and teaching me and helping me. Um, like I see two different things happening. And um, one thing is, all the guys that I was fighting with in the mid nineties, all of us had jobs work 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. And then we trained six days a week and we would train usually about three hours a night and sometimes four, depending on what we had. And we would do our own running or lifting weights or whatever on this side. Um, but we were really heavy to one side. Like, yes, we would go to the boxing gym and get, you know, a couple of boxing sessions in a week, but we were really heavy on the grappling. And we didn't do a lot of work in the transition spaces, right? Like working up against the cage or the ring and doing that kind of stuff. We, we, we missed over some of that stuff. So we missed some of the little stuff, but we were so good at the basics. Every time we were doing basics, we were doing 100 to 200 reps of whatever we were doing. We never did 10 or 15 or 20. So we were doing a ton of basic work. But the thing with the guys now is the, it's a full-time job because they can actually make a living. And we were making between $500 and $2,000 a fight. Um, so you, you can't quit your, your regular job with that. And so now the guys are training at, beyond an Olympic level athlete, right? Because they have, they have a personal trainer, right? They have a massage therapist. They have a dietitian. They have a jujitsu coach. They have a Muay Thai coach. They have a wrestling coach. They have a boxing coach. And then they probably even have like a, a, a psychological coach, some, a psychologist that's a sports psychologist that's kind of working with their head. So we didn't understand any of that the same way. And also we didn't have the same thing to benefit. So the level has gone way up in terms of athleticism. And also there's more understanding of, of techniques and they can create more situations. Most of that, I think, my opinion is most of that's great and most of it's very good. With the gi and, and gi jujitsu, my opinion, just my, I know guys, a lot of guys don't agree with me, but 
um, I don't know that it's gotten a lot better. It's gotten a lot more fancy and like, you know, a lot of, a lot more upside down inverted stuff, a lot more Barambolo. And for my job, because I'm so focused on uh, real scenarios because we're fighting maybe with guns or knives or bats, that doesn't work with what we were doing before for jujitsu. And the one thing that worked from the old days is we did the same stuff with a gi on, with no gi, and in MMA, we were literally doing the same things. So it translated across three sports. I don't know that that's true today. Um, I think MMA has evolved very, very far past that. Jiu-Jitsu has evolved for sure, but the mindset of like uh, the combat portion, the martial portion of the art, I don't know. I think I see a, a little bit of the same progression that I saw with some of the striking arts um, where it's really sport focused and really point focused and maybe things that we wouldn't ever do in the street. Now we're doing in a tournament to score an advantage or two points or whatever it is. So I know a lot of guys don't agree with me and that's fine. Uh, everybody has their own opinion on that, but uh, I've seen this thing that, that we are talking about evolve and devolve at the same time. Yeah. I had opportunity to spend a week with the Valenti brothers in Miami uh, training there is for people who don't know. Uh, I think maybe episode 32, if you guys have a chance to listen, if you haven't listened, uh, good stuff. He, uh, they focus mainly, it's an incredible academy, the prettiest uh, facility that I've ever seen. They do, a, do an incredible job there. And it's really cool that he talks about, you know, uh, he has his vision too of jujitsu, but I say like, man, basically anything that you can chokes that could be applied with clothes or a jacket we implement in our train is there anything that like for example the lapel game or whatever like is this is not for what we do it's not that it's wrong, right or wrong just for what we do it's just not practical you know so we prefer like yes there's someone's has a jacket what kind of chokes can we do it has a suit what kind of choke so whatever if they're closed so they try to bring it in whatever they feel that is practical yes. and when you go to the competition side, it's, um, well, basically the competition just breeds this evolution because in the early nine, I started training in 1989. So the difference when I see from before the, the sport, even before have a, a Brazilian nationals, I mean, the game was very different. Everyone passed guard, both knees down, you get, you smash, you get to the half guard and then you pass. And then with time, people start to like, okay, how you deal with this? Oh, there's a half guard thing here. Okay, now we can develop, we can evolve this half guard, you know? And that was funny. I had the opportunity to interview uh, Roberto Correa, Gordo. He's one of the trailblazers from um, uh, Baja, Gracie, now it's Gracie Baja, that he did basically the one that developed, he didn't create, the half guard, but he definitely helped the the evolution of variations. And that was interesting because he was like, so he's practiced at a school, he go to the tournament and then sweep someone, people like, dude, what the hell was that? You know, and then they they get ready for the next tournament to counter that move. But guess what? Already someone already tried to counter at the school. So they try to counter and he comes, they already have something. And then people start to uh filming. Now people start studying, ha, let me study this guy. And then people start getting on their, their feet to passing more, squatting down, like, oh, you need a different type of guard. And they just started to evolve and evolving. Nice. And then basically that's where we at right now. And the athletes always, as far as competition goes, if the rules are there, the, the athletes always will find a way to adapt to the, to the rules, game the systems in some way, you know, 
but but it's nice to see that at least uh, jujitsu from what was it? So yeah, I've been here since 1999. I came here to Arizona. Uh, I mean, maybe we had not even 10 schools in the state, you know, a little bit less. And now we have probably 150 in the state. So it's just crazy, you know, crazy amount of schools and, and development. So now let's talk about uh, when did the idea of getting into this field of security came about when did it start to kind of like brainstorming more ideas and eventually to become a business? Yeah, so for me, I had learned most of the skills that are necessary from the business, most of them, not all of them, from the military. So the Marines did a lot of things that were very security centric and protecting people, protecting places, protecting things. So I had that knowledge. And then I was working uh, in LA and uh, in LA, there are a lot of very wealthy people that have bodyguards, that have security, that have protection because they have hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And those people would commonly go down to Mexico. They'd go to Mexico for business trips. They'd go to Mexico for vacation. Um, and I just, because I'm lucky, I, I met a person and they said, oh, you speak Spanish? Well, we need a translator. Oh, and you, you fight. So if we get into a problem, you can handle that. Um, and that's wrong too, by the way, because if I'm fighting someone, I'm not really taking care of my client. So the idea was wrong. I got in the wrong way because they looked at it from that perspective. But um, that was kind of how I got into that side of things. And then eventually it morphed into a, a, a broader business because I took one big client and then I leveraged that name to get another one. And I developed a team in a lot of different areas. Um, so, you know, we went all over the world and we still do. Uh, short of COVID, um, and traveling to all these different places, you meet different people, you work with those people, you train those people, kind of like you would in jujitsu. If you had an association, you go to one place and you train those guys, and you go to another place and you train those guys. And before you know it, you have this large association that you have guys that you're training and they're developing. And when you go to those places, not only you have a place to train, but you have friends and family and things like that. So um, now we're about 80% entertainment. So we do music tours, whatever bands you like to play, they good chance they're our client. Um, and then uh, film tours are not quite tours, but they shoot on location. So let's say they go to Brazil and they're shooting maybe in Rio, right? And in Rio, you know, they can be shooting wherever. The last spot I was in Rio is very nice and they didn't need a lot of security, but let's say I go and I find uh, guys from Kore or guys from Hota that are going to help me. And I have this team that I work with and we know how we do business and they give me the intelligence and we put things together. So now it's kind of evolved into this very large global network that we utilize for actors, musicians, executives, dignitaries, governmental officials, non-governmental officials, stuff like that. What are some of the, if you can share some of the kind of sketches places that have been that, I mean, I have to say, uh, I lived 24 years of my life in Brazil. Uh, uh, I don't, to be honest, I don't know Brazil that well because I lived most of my life in Rio. And I honestly, I maybe know like six states in Brazil or something. I don't know. It's just my life was just all around Rio. And when I still go to Rio, I'm not going to lie. If I go to the city, I'm uh, uneasy. You know what I mean? Because I'm always kind of like, what's going on? looking over my shoulder and because 
I've been robbed before. I've been robbed by police officers. I've been uh, robbed by thugs, you know, drug dealers, you know. So I've been in a lot of like crappy scenarios there, you know. But what are some, uh, sometimes it depends like what situation you got into, but what are some of the kind of, you know, sketchiest places that you've you've been? There are a lot of things. It's kind of like jujitsu. There are a lot of variables and how those variables get adjusted determines what move will work and what move won't work. And so it's the same for security. Um, we're trying to go into a place with as much information as we can have about what's happening at that time, uh, what the good guys are doing, what the bad guys are doing, what areas they're in, what their activities are, like what the crimes are that they typically commit in those areas, what time of day they do those things, what time of the year it's more prevalent, when there's spikes or when there's decreases, then who can stop them or who are they afraid of? Um, even sometimes you may have to go into a neighborhood that you can't really have police in so you have to pay off some guys for security that are not the good guys like you know i uh in brazil for example in rio uh the last time that i was there we had to go in for a charity thing into mare in mare right now is not good it's 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 a big problem for us so especially guys looking like me half our team looks like me and the other guys are kind of mixed in or black and so they look like police because they're Kore guys or they're Hota guys. And that's, that's an issue too, right? So now I can't go with those guys because they've been fighting. And at the time, you know, a year ago, there's two different groups fighting each other right there in the middle. So you're on one side fighting, you're on the other side fighting, and we're trying to go in and deal with a non-governmental organization. Um, you know, and this is another thing. The time I'm in there, I have one guy who is very like Lula and he's pro Lula. And then the guys, security guys that I'm with are all pro Bolsonaro. And so now I have to manage this aspect of it and the, the physical threat on the ground. So it's a lot of work in relationships and understanding the components and what's happening and how to address it. Like we're managing a lot of variables at the same time, very similar to jujitsu. Right, because every time you get into a certain position, you have weaknesses and you have strengths, and you have to know where they're at, how to manipulate them, how to set the other guy up for what it is you're looking for, and then protect yourself at the same time. And so it's very, very similar to jujitsu: the strategies, the techniques, the ideas, the concepts that we use for protecting people. Yeah, what scares me, like not in Brazil but like Mexico too, when man you cannot trust the law enforcement you know what i mean with that that is what scares me the most of like oh yeah who is gonna help me you know and in brazil like i said i've been in many situations man uh in in brazil i i feel like i'm a lot more relaxed here in us but like in brazil i need to be always kind of like scoping the place you know, uh, about Smart, because situational awareness gives you the information you need. It's just like when you're doing jujitsu and you're paying attention to where the guy's hands are, where his feet are, how he's moving his shoulders, how, where he's looking. You're doing the same thing, but you're just doing it on the street. It's you're assessing funny. your environment. Yeah. I mean, I've got away from robberies and buses and stuff like that. Just reading right before that happened, yes. you know, a uh, situation yes. like that, but uh, about Mm, it's got to be two years ago. I was in I was in Rio for the UFC, and so I got there like maybe Monday night. So we stayed for the whole week, you know, to have the the lose weight and process and stuff like that. So we're there with the fighters. So I was at the Sheraton in Baja da Tijuca, which is like a nice area, and yes. you 
and Sheraton's right across the street from the beach. It's a nice place. This is not the Sheraton. This is not the Sheraton in Vigigal. So there's the no. Vigigal, go down south, uh, just, just below Vigigal is the Sheraton. Is that the one you're talking about? No, this one is, this one is right at Baja. Baja. Yeah, yeah, right at across. Baja shopping. Yeah, like like across the street from the from the beach, you know. So yes. you just basically just just cross the street or there. So I got there and they had a little kiosk uh, at night uh, that is is a spot that not too many people usually are there. But since the hotel was full, a lot of the staff, the UFC, when they're done at night, they'd go like, "Hey, let's grab a beer in the kiosk across the street." So I remember the first day they had a gas station. Uh, next to it, that was go at night. And I saw people hanging out about 10 at night. And I look at it. And the first thing came my my mind was like, how easy to be to jack all those people? Because there was like the setup was so easy. It's dark. There's nothing coming. Or, it, was, it was just so, so easy to see it. And then I was like, oh, that's strange. So that was, I think, maybe Tuesday. Uh, no, I think it was maybe Tuesday night, Wednesday night. By the third night, they figured out these guys are coming here every night. They already knew because they established a pattern. Exactly, exactly. And then I was—I remember Thursday night. It was probably eleven. I was late. I went to the the gas station back. We just finished the weight cutting stuff. And then next day, what about? I hear about twelve thirty. Three guys went there. They robbed all twenty people. Took all like passports, phones, everything. And that the way they parked the car, the way they they knew where to go everything you know what i mean it was actually show showing a sure dog and showing the new york times you know like because a bunch of like the employees are now stuck without like a ufc employees without travel they don't have their passport they had to contact the embassy it was this whole mess but man in brazil um you got you gotta you have to be uh, aware of what's going on yeah you have to adapt to your environment and one of the things too in that situation like you noted one thing like lighting conditions right so um if you look at the lighting conditions very low lighting it makes it easier to to get in and they don't detect you early like you said you detected someone that was about to do something um and also you look at how easy it is to get into that parking lot or get out of that parking lot so that you don't get caught another thing that they can take advantage of in that situation is fighters because fighters think that because they can fight they can deal with something like a gun or a knife or multiple guys and it doesn't work that way <laughs> uh, so they can take advantage of your confidence because you become overly confident in a situation that you're not trained for so all that stuff again very much like jujitsu but you know even for example like if you were in uh uh, LeBlanc. LeBlanc is a very nice area, right? You can be like, oh, it's nice. I'm going to Sushi LeBlanc and everything's cool. But it's also a great spot to target people because there's a lot of people with a lot of money in that spot and they hit them and they go. It's not just in the favelas where this is happening. And, and I think a lot of tourists kind of lose that mindset and they kind of detach and they're relaxed and they're not paying attention. And this is where a lot of problems happen in, in Brazil. But the the issues in Brazil are very different from the issues in Mexico. Like kidnapping in Brazil is not a fraction as common, uh, but the violence is very similar. Like not the methods, but the general violence. Um, and, and also the, the political components, especially in the last few years uh, within Brazil, like the, the volume of political battle between the sides and the things that are happening is pretty, pretty uh, extreme situation. Yeah, I want to, uh, for all the listeners, I want you to picture a scenario, and that's something for you to picture the scenario too, Todd. Let's say you're like 
probably five minutes from your house walking at night, 10 p.m. There's nothing really going on. Suddenly a car next to you stop. Both have guns and they say, get in a car. So <laughs> for people who are listening, what would you do? Of course, it's, there's a lot of things to take in consideration. To, you know, it's a kind of broad, you know, like scenario, like what exactly we have. But uh, I've been in that situation before getting home. And that was uh, pretty, uh, that's probably one of the closest that I've been to like, okay, that's, uh, uh, that's a wrap. It might be, you know, but that happened with me. I don't, I know someone, I'm not, not, I know personally, but a case that was very similar to mine, but the guy ended up actually getting shot and ended up in a wheelchair, you know, because he tried to run. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in my scenario, I was coming back from jujitsu as a blue belt, I was in my senior year in high school, and I was walking home, and then where I live, it's like a middle, low middle class area, but surrounded by the favelas and stuff like that. So I'm just walking, I'm not even know, but for the guys who are listening, I don't think I ever shared this story yet, I don't remember. But anyway, I was going, going home and suddenly I just hear a car just turning like, scratching the tires. And then, so I thought it'd be like a friend of mine playing around, you know, like break yourself food type of deal, you know, cause I've done it before. And then I'm walking calm. And then I looked at the side and a Volkswagen bug and there's two guys, older gentlemen, you know, gray hair. One already have their gun outside of the window. The other one walk out with a gun. And he's just like, give me the dope, give the dope. I was like, man, I just leave. And I was able to stay calm. I'm like, man, I just live down the street here, man. You know, uh, um, just coming from from training, from jujitsu or whatever. So, and I'm thinking that's the only gi that I have. That's my worry. <laughs> like as a senior, it's like, oh my God, he's going to take my gi. That's my only gi I have. <laughs> you know, and um so he started grabbing my my bag, you know. So he opened, see that, and then I tried to grab back. Like, man, there's there's nothing for you to steal. That's what I, I used the word steal when I said that. And then he turns to me like, do you uh do you think I'm a scumbag? So he pulls and show his badge. I don't know if the badge was legit or not. I don't know, but he tried to kind of like he and he probably owned something, some type of drugs because he was kind of really kind of like agitated, you know. And then when I said that, he turned and he tries to kind of shove it in my face. And I just kind of like step back more in a reflex and put my hand up. So now he's even mad because he thinks that I'm trying to fight. So he turned his gun to the side trying to hit me. So I'm moving back, but I'm still in the mission of my gi. I'm like, dude, you know, like there's nothing like I just, I just wanted my gi back. There's nothing here for you. And then I, I just grabbed the bag and then he grabbed back and I'm like, man, it, there's nothing there. It's just a gi. And then he goes, get in the car. So and then right automatically, like, Oop, I let go. I saw walking back. I was like, no, no problem. And then that's when um, it was bad that he got, uh, he went like, he cocked his gun, said, if you run, it's going to be worse. And that by this point, I'm in the middle of the street. I was in a sidewalk and I saw walking. So you got to a point that I'm like, I need to run. And I just kind of ran to the sidewalk. In Brazil, people park the car, parallel parking. So there's a lot. Of, so I just kind of ran to the side and tried to run kind of squatting down and kind of screaming for help. And basically they reversed and they, they took off. But I don't know if he was, if I did the right thing or the stupid thing, 
I don't know what's going to happen if I would get in a car. I could definitely be shot, you know, when I ran. That's what happened with this guy. I watched a documentary on this guy. He's a, like a Paralympic athlete that because of that a similar situation he ran, he got shot in his back. And that could totally uh, happen with me. I was probably like, what, 18 years old. Um, and a scenario like that, if any suggestion, I mean, it's tough for you to kind of picture that, but like, yeah. it's either you get in a car, you don't, you know what I mean, at that point. Yeah, so, so the first thing I would tell you, it, it's complex what you're presenting, but I, I have a simple kind of overview for you. Um, there's no move in jujitsu that is one size fits all. Like, yeah. Anytime somebody does something, just do an armbar. Anytime somebody just do a trick, like, it doesn't work. So every scenario is different, even with these guys. How many guys are where they're at, what the distances are, what the time of day is, what your training is, all these things change. But the first thing is this. The first thing is that the most likely chance of having some problem like this is close to your house. Why? Because you spend most of your time close enough to your house. You're not going super far away. So it's likely to happen there. The good thing about that is we do a thing called baseline anomaly. So the first thing is in your neighborhood, in your realm, you know what is normal activity. You can establish what's a baseline. And when you establish a baseline, that allows you to identify anomalies, something that doesn't fit into the environment. So you have two types of anomalies, right? One anomaly is above the baseline, one anomaly is below the baseline. Meaning all of a sudden something is added to the environment that was never there before, that's an anomaly above. And then all of a sudden there was always something there and now it's gone. That's an anomaly below the baseline. Also, there are two types of anomalies. One is a critical anomaly, meaning something that can hurt you. And another one is called a benign anomaly, meaning something is different. Something's added or taken away from the normal environment, but it really doesn't, doesn't matter because it's not going to hurt you. It's not capable of hurting you. So the first thing is when you know it's in your neighborhood and you know what's normal, you can say, oh, that's not normal. And then I have to make a choice, right? The choice is I either continue doing what I want. I change my behavior or I cancel it meaning I'm not going to go that way anymore, right? So you can either change your route or you can back, go back where you came from or you can just, you know what? I'm just going to keep walking like I'm walking. So it's, it's continue, change, or cancel uh, when we have those anomalies. Now, one thing that you're not going to know as a senior in high school that would help you make a decision is what are what they call the TTPs or tactics, techniques, and procedures of the bad guys in Brazil. What do they normally do? What normally happens in Brazil, most of the time, not for very, very rich soccer players, but for average guy like you or me, uh, they want to do an express kidnapping, meaning I want to get as much as I can from you. And then I want to get away. I don't want to mm -hmm. kill you. I don't get anything for killing you most of the time. But if the guy was on some drugs, maybe he doesn't want to do that. Maybe he wants to get rid of the witness, right? So he gets your stuff and he kills you because he's not making a decision that's normal. So it's a very difficult decision for you to make. But like all decisions, just like jujitsu, we have to understand the problem. I have to know that this guy can do a specific move from that position before I can defend it. If I'm not worried about him doing it, it's because I don't know something is, is possible there. So the first thing is to know what happens in your environment, right? So, okay, I know what the baseline is and I know what the bad guys do. Now, I'll tell you this, the general rule of thumb, the general rule, and this is not all situations, but the general rule is you never get into the car with people because that usually leads to very bad things. Maybe yeah. not in this situation. Uh, in Mexico, sometimes guys get in and they take them far away outside town and they take their clothes and their shoes and whatever. They leave them maybe in their underwear and the person has to walk back 30 miles to get to where they're going and they don't kill the person, but they want to take them away from the environment. 
but you can't plan on that. So 80% of the time, very bad things happen when you get in a car with somebody with a gun. So I think you made the right choice. Yes, sometimes they'll shoot you anyway. Um, but it's better to take that chance, I think. And maybe the guy is a, a paraplegic now, but he's alive. And maybe if he got in the car with those guys, he wouldn't be alive today. So I think you have to play kind of these odds. And, and when you look at it, um, let's say you're watching two slot machines. You know what slot machines are that you mm -hmm. put money into? Yeah. So you're playing gambling. And I look at two slot machines and I look at this one on the left and I see that when people play it, eight out of 10 times, they win. And I look at the one on the right and I see them play it and eight out of 10 times they lose. I have one coin, just one quarter or one token. If I have to make a decision right now on which one I'm going to play, I'm going to Got play it. the one that wins eight out of 10 times. Mm -hmm. So it's just a, a risk assessment that you make and you make the best judgment with the information you have in the moment and what you see and you can take in and process in that particular situation. So if I was you, I would have done the same thing. The one little thing that's different, and it's very hard for guys like us who are guys who have a fighting background, jujitsu background, whatever it is, you are ready to fight or deal with a person. And the gi means a lot to you. It means a lot to me. Um, but it doesn't mean enough to lose my life. Oh, absolutely. You know, so our first thought is resistance. Like, you know what? take it. I, I can get yeah, another gi. I, I can get another life. So it's, it's a hard thing for guys like us to do. And, and in protection, a lot of what we do is not staying and fighting. A lot of what we do is take our clients and we get out mm -hmm. so that we're not in the environment. So the first thing for us is we don't go where there are problems. Uh, I had during one period of time in, in Brazil, uh, a client that wanted to do this charity thing in Complexo do Alemão. Uh, and at the time, the uh, military police were going up into Complexo do Alemão and having a, I think they called it pacification. Yeah. Uh, process and i'm like no we're not going there like no no we're gonna go there. and i explained look we we shouldn't go there because that's where problems happen they're in the middle of this thing we're not doing it so they're the ones that pay the money in the end i'm there to protect them they decide to go so the first thing is don't go where there are problems the second thing is if you have to go where there are problems as soon as you see indicators of things going bad you leave don't stay and pull out your iPhone and record or don't walk to the problem so that you're closer to the problem. Leave, right? The guy's attacking my collar. I don't sit there and just let him finish the choke, right? I see he grabs, oh, I take the grip off. I don't, I don't want that, right? Because that leads to a problem. And then the last thing is if you can't leave to stay and fight, but that's the last thing for us. First is don't go where there are problems. Second is if you have to go where there are problems and you see, because like you, you're analyzing your situation, you're looking around, you're aware of your surroundings, you have situational awareness. I see, oh, that's happening and that's happening. Those things together mean something really bad is about to happen. I'm leaving and I get as far away as I can, as quick as I can. And then the last thing, obviously, as I mentioned, okay, I'm stuck here now. This guy's attacking me. I got to fight back. Yeah. Now just change gear, but still around the same topic. I'd love to hear your personal opinion about martial arts training for law enforcement officers. As you already know, it's an issue in the country. So I'd love to hear like your view and possible solutions to minimize the damage of a lot of officers literally not having a clue what to do. So this is a conversation I've been having a lot on a lot of different podcasts with a lot of different people in the community. Um, and it, it also, like everything, is complex. It's not just one simple answer to solve the problem. The first thing is that the 
society has to accept or realize that these guys need more training, which means more tax dollars to fund the training. And so in the academy, they need realistic programs. So there are a lot of different um, defensive tactics programs. Uh, not all of them are realistic. Not all of them are something you can apply under stress. One of the beautiful things about combat sports, and I'm just going to call it four things, right, for us. Jiu-jitsu, wrestling, Muay Thai, and boxing. Those are combat sports. And when you train, you do the thing that you're going to do in a fight in training. Unfortunately, with a lot of stuff that some law enforcement agencies teach, they actually don't do the thing. Oh, you're going to stick your finger in their eye, or you're going to grab their throat, or you're going to hit this pressure point, or you're going to, and it's not realistic, right? So the beauty of combat sports, they're very realistic. You learn that you have a problem, you analyze it, and you solve it. And every time it's hard, and you, you finish, and you keep fighting until the end, and then there's another fight, and then there's another fight. And we learn that through, you know, rounds in jiu-jitsu, or rounds in Muay Thai, or boxing, or wrestling. So they need to have the money for it. They need to have the understanding that it needs to be done and they need to modify it to make it realistic for the most common scenarios law enforcement officers face. And then they need to get good instructors who understand the difference between point jujitsu and fighting with a bunch of stuff on. So for example, if you're fighting in a controlled space with a referee, with a time limit, with a belt class, with a weight class, with an age class, that's nothing like fighting in the street when you have on your waist you have a gun you have uh magazines two or three magazines you have uh oc spray what you call mace you have uh, an asp or a baton you have a taser you have a camera you have all this stuff on you right and you're not going to be able to move around like you do with a kimono on and you're fighting now on concrete and there's curbs around and there's cars and you don't have to worry about when you're doing jujitsu, other people running into the fight and kicking you in the head and taking your gun and shooting you. That, that's not real. So a lot of stuff also, these guys deal with people that are on drugs. Like you mentioned the guy that uh, attacked you. Uh, he was on something, you think. You know, moves that we do, like breaking limbs, like an armbar, a guy on a extreme drugs doesn't feel the pain from that. So this is not the appropriate movement for these guys, right? These guys need control positions where they can affect cuffing from. These guys need positions where they can render someone who's bigger, stronger, meaner, who's attacking with a weapon with what they call something like, uh, you'd call a rear naked choke. It's called a lateral vascular neck restraint uh, to slow the blood down or limit the amount of blood going to their brain. They need the ability to do these things and society has to accept it then the local government has to accept it, then the agency has to accept it, and then they have to put it into training, and then they have to write it into their policies that these things are acceptable. So my opinion is, first first things first, jujitsu is for sure the best thing for law enforcement to learn because it's the softest, gentlest. Yes, there's hardcore jujitsu, but realistically, the fights start standing up, but they end on the ground. And so when they're trying to... to affect an arrest when they're trying to put the handcuffs on the guy that's where 90 some odd percent of use of force where fights occur with police officers so we know that so they get into grappling well you know grappling whoever controls the space typically controls the fight now we have to learn how to protect our gun and stop them from taking out their gun uh, now we have to learn how to fight inside cars against doors on the ground under cars 
Um, these things are something that the jujitsu guys don't do because they don't need to, but police officers need to. So basically what I'm saying is they need a special form of jujitsu modified for police in a uniform with their gear, de dealing with someone who's trying to kill them, take their gun or kill someone else. We adapt jujitsu for that, just like we adapt jujitsu for MMA. We make it specific for law enforcement. We put them through these scenarios. They do high repetition with high stress and they do it regularly. They can't just do it in a police academy. Let's say they're in a six month long academy and they get one month of jujitsu. That's not enough for anybody. It's not enough for a guy uh, that comes in here in, in my gym. Uh, you know, It's gonna take him two years to get to a blue belt if he trains three times a week. So the idea that you know, you're gonna train a guy for a month in a police academy and then somehow he can do it under real life stress, not in a jujitsu tournament, not in a sparring class, but in real life, it's not real. So what we need to do is mandate that, yes, you're doing it in the academy, but also you have this regular, what they call in-service training. So your agency makes you do it, or they buy you a, a, a membership to a gym and you're able to go there and train. And maybe you as a gym owner are having a law enforcement specific class that deals with these kinds of problems, right? Um, for example, you know, if I'm doing something like a body lock takedown, I want to pull my arm out before we hit the ground because I don't want this guy that I'm taking down who's 250 to land on my arm and maybe there's a curb right there, right? These kinds of things are how we need to think. Also, let's say, think about this. All the cop's tools are on his waistline. What happens when someone puts him in the guard? What happens? He can't access any of that because the legs are there, the hips are there, all that stuff's gone now. So he needs to really be able to prevent someone from wrapping their legs around all of his tools. Think about this. How am I keeping my gun inside my holster when this guy's grabbing it? That's something that jujitsu needs to incorporate. And I don't mean, you know, these knife takeaways, gun takeaways, that crazy stuff that's not real. I just mean very simple techniques you can do under stress. So all of that's available. A lot of stuff's out there. I know GST is getting a big following now. Uh, we run a program specifically for law enforcement with state and federal agencies, but it's geared toward law enforcement, right? It's not, um, it's not BJJ for a tournament. It's not BJJ for MMA. It's BJJ for law enforcement. So 100% um, jujitsu first, and then they need to learn other things like boxing, Muay Thai, wrestling, but jujitsu. It's a great solution for law enforcement. It's a great tool. And also yeah. what, one, one last thing. When you have jujitsu and when you develop it and you really understand how it works, the number one byproduct of that is confidence. And when you have that confidence, you're less likely to fight these guys overly aggressive. You're less likely to go to your gun because you have a high level of confidence. So it, it does a lot of things. The physical fitness, they're in shape. You develop their brain. They have solutions and options. In jujitsu, they build the camaraderie with the other law enforcement officers. So there's a lot of things to benefit. So go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you, buddy. Yeah, no, I have a few students who are police officers too. And a good friend of mine that is uh, one of my black belts, been training with me for over 20 years, just retired as a police officer. But something that he always talked about too, it's like the amount of officers that they're not willing to put the time to get the skills to improve. There's a very small, I mean, the tiny, tiny percentage of guys that take their own responsibility, look for a gym because they know like, and one thing that even when I work with officers have done some seminars or whatever, I always take uh, my friend with me because I say like, I never fought for my life. I mean, anytime that an officer 
getting some type of scrap, literally fighting for your life. You don't know whoever doesn't want to go back to prison or whatever, they're willing to kill someone not to go back. You never know. In so, an uncontrolled environment. Yeah. Not on soft mats, not with your friends, not without weapons. So it's, a, it's much more complex, much more intense. So do you feel that, do you notice that resistance, resistance to from officers? Yeah, so on my side of things, uh, fortunately for me, when I was a law enforcement officer, I was very active at shooting. I was very active at fighting. I was very active at fitness because I love those things. But a large percentage are not. Um, one thing that's happened in our society is we've stopped regulating certain things, right? So for most police agencies, they don't mandate certain components like fitness. Like you don't have to have a fitness test. Well, that's a little bit crazy because fitness is what's going to save their life, but not just their life, the other officers' lives who they're protecting or the citizens' lives who they're protecting. So we need to probably mandate a little bit more training. We need to have a little bit more oversight of this type of training one of the things that stops it or slows it down is this fear of getting hurt, right? Because when you train intense, when you train hard, you get hurt. It happens. I, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you with a torn MCL, a torn meniscus, and I trained today for two hours. Uh, you know, there's ways around it. We can reduce those uh, injuries through training. Their biggest concern is if I have to pay you, Gustavo, to come to work as a police officer today and you get hurt, I still have to pay you, but now I'm down one guy. So I have to figure out how I'm going to pull that in. And it costs me a lot of money plus workers comp and all these other components. So there's a way to do it, but we have to understand that that, that risk is much smaller and much less significant than the loss of life. And preservation of life is generally the focus of all law enforcement agencies, first the community and then other officers. What are some of the best programs that you've seen as far as, uh, I don't know if police academies or or not necessarily police academy, but like any states that you see like, wow, they're doing a good job. Yeah, yeah. It just actually, it's, it's funny you should ask that because um, where I'm at right now is a unique spot. I'm, I'm in Missouri and, I, you know, most people wouldn't think of it as a leader or anything. But oddly enough, the Missouri State Highway Patrol is doing Muay Thai, Jiu Jitsu, boxing and wrestling with a a focus, a very heavy focus on Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And they've been doing that for 15 years. Uh, and they're doing pressure uh, testing of everything they're doing. Uh, you know, they're, they're really, really leading the way. And not in the last year or three years or five years. This has been a long period of time that they've done this. Um, there was a guy named Kirk Davis, who is a captain on the Highway Patrol, who brought it 15 years ago and the programs continue to develop. And I think the command staff, the people that are in charge really see the value of this. So again, they get confidence, they get camaraderie, they get fitness, they get flexibility. And on top of that, they're, they're developing these skills that are gonna help the community. They're gonna help to save people. And they're also not gonna be as quick to act. So yes, there are a few agencies that are adopting it. And I see slowly a change across the United States toward uh, law enforcement, you know, now there's three or four different groups that you'll see on social media that, you know, like adopt a cop and whatever entity. Um, a, a lot of cops now have access if they want to train to train for free. But the problem, like you said, isn't that the problem is the guy's got to be willing to come in and take his own time to learn how to save his life. And that's true, not just with defensive tactics, 
but also with firearms. They got to train off duty because there's just not enough time in the day for them to get all of the training they need. Look, they need driver training. They need law training. They need uh, first aid training. They need, you know, now they do a lot of, of sen sensitivity and cultural awareness training. There's so many different trainings that they need and that the whatever governing body for, for us here, we have what's called post. Uh, post is, is, is the standards. And so that division will oversee how many hours they need of each thing. And unfortunately, defensive tactics typically get cut out. So I, I agree that we need it. I see a lot more support for it. It's going in the right direction. The only question is, is it going fast enough? You know, is there enough community support for it? Is there enough law enforcement officers pushing behind it? And so far, I see maybe 300% more than I saw five years ago which is a big deal. So we're, yeah. I think we're going in the right direction. I hear a lot of good messaging from police and they understand there's a problem. They understand they need it. They're trying to get away from the, the silliness of pressure points and get into the, the reality of jujitsu and, and having control in these situations. So I, I, think, I think we're going there. And in, and in the dozen states that I've worked with and the federal agencies that I've worked with, you know, like I said here, these guys are, have really been on top of it and, and uh, uh, you know, makes me, makes me happy to live here. When I see that. Awesome. Now let's talk about your most recent book, Protection for and from Humanity. So tell us more about the context of the uh, the book, uh, how long it's been around. So yeah, tell us more about it. Yeah, so this is my third book, uh, Protection for and from Humanity um, is me implying that uh, what creates the problem is people, but what solves the problem is people. And what Again, the opposite, you know, the, we create our problems, we need to solve them. We are the solution to any problem. And really your brain is your primary weapon. That's the thing that's gonna solve the problem for you. And so in this book, um, which came out in October last year, um, I really write it for the average person, you know, for the private citizen who doesn't know anything about the military or law enforcement or any of these different protective systems. And it's a common sense approach to learning these systems. How do I deal with certain issues? How do I protect myself? For example, how do I protect my house? How do I create these layered security approaches to my house? Um, you know, how far away does it start? You know, do I have a fence? Do I have a dog? Do I have cameras? Do I have good lighting? Do I have an alarm? Do I have a plan for how I operate in my house in the dark? Where does my family go? Where do I go? Do I use weapons? What type of weapons? What are the local laws? Uh, what can I do legally? What can I not do legally? Um, you know, what other networks do I have in my neighborhood to help me? How, what is the normal response time for police? So talking about some simple stuff like that and then getting into a few more complex systems and, you know, how we are able to deter people from ever selecting us as a target, how we're able to um, delay them once they do select us, right? How we're able to deny them or defend ourselves, how we're able to mitigate Right, because after you defend yourself, maybe that person gets hurt and now they're suing you. So that's another component. Um, we talk a lot about um, overseas travel, right? If I'm going to Brazil, what do I need to know, right? What's gonna happen? Well, I know I'm gonna be at the airport. I know I'm gonna be at a hotel. I know I'm gonna be in a car moving on the roads. And maybe I need to understand by going to the State Department's website and looking at a crime and safety report that there are a lot of tunnels in Rio and sometimes the bad guys come out of the favelas, mm -hmm. they block either end of the tunnel and they go through with their guns. And now if in my security detail is a police officer from Secore, and now they find his badge, 
they kill him immediately. Mm -hmm. They find a badge, they kill him. So I need to understand how those things work. How do I plan for it? Well, simple way is take the beach road. Don't, don't go through the tunnels when you don't have to go through the tunnel or change the time of day that you go. Because if you look at the history of when they make the attacks, when they block the either end of the tunnel, when they go through and do whatever, it's consistent. So I can see a pattern and then I adjust according to the pattern. So we talk a lot about that, who can help you, how they can help you, what insurance policies you can get, what different people do in different places. Um, but basically it gives a normal person access to information, systems, strategies on how to approach their safety, the safety for their business or for their family, their kids, things like that. I see. It's very interesting you, you're talking about the patterns, you know, because it plays a movie in my my mind being a teenager and then that's crazy but you start to identify i've been i've been robbed uh on a bus once and i've got away probably between seven and ten times different stuff that i was like they if there's two people usually they go as soon they get together one sit in one door they all sit the other door i'm like oh like i'm out because i I, that's how I got robbed before. You know what I mean? Like you just see they're very sketchy how they go in. Yes. And, and that's yeah, so, crazy how like you're young having to figure this out too. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we talk about in there is something called equation manipulation. So earlier I mentioned like you have these variables that lead up to an outcome. So let's say A plus B plus C equals X and X is a bad thing. I don't want X to happen. So if I know what those variables are, like the time, the place, and the method of attack, I can start to manipulate that stuff. So I don't go to the place where there are problems, which I mentioned earlier, and then I leave when something happens, or I notice something like, okay, I see this thing happening here, and I'm going to remove myself from the equation. So if, I, if, if I'm you know, C in the equation, C is gone. The attack can't happen to me. So it's just learning how to manipulate these equations so that you're safe, you stay safe, or you stay safer. It's impossible to be 100% safe if you're a human, uh, but you can certainly take measures to be safer, just like jujitsu. You don't put yourself in certain positions, you don't have to worry about that for the most part. So this book, I, I think, is a great book. In fact, if you, if you remind me when we're done, I'll, I'll send you a copy, mm -hmm. and uh, I think you're going to like it because it's going to really relate to your growing up in Brazil and some of the things you see happening. But more than that, it's going to really relate to jiu-jitsu for you. You're going to be like, this is the same as jiu-jitsu. This is the same as jiu-jitsu. One of the things that we talk about is the decision-making cycle, right? Um, something called the OODA loop, O-O-D-A. Um, that was created by a fighter pilot named John Boyd in the Air Force. And what he found was that as he's in a dogfight with aircraft in the air, he has to observe the other plane. He has to orient or adjust to it. He has to decide what he's going to do, and then he has to act. So mm -hmm. observe, orient, decide, and act. Now, in jiu-jitsu, it's the exact same thing. It's True. literally the same thing before you can cycle through. And then every time the guy really makes a major change in his position, you have to start the OODA loop again because now I have to re-observe where he's at. I have to orient or adjust to my body where it's at. I have to decide what technique I'm going to do, and then I have to do it. And so this decision-making cycle, generally speaking, whoever's able to cycle through it the fastest typically wins the fight. Mm -hmm. Now, that was talking about dog fights with aircraft. But it's true in jujitsu too. If I can see the problem, I know what it is. I throw the defense to it and then I start an attack and I cycle through it the quickest. One thing that happens is that while I'm seeing it quicker and I'm doing whatever, I'm expanding the OODA loop of the other guy. 
So now all of a sudden he's getting overwhelmed because what he thought was there is no longer there and I'm changing the game on him. So it's taking longer to go through that same cycle. I cycled through quick and as I'm going through quick, he's realizing it and then his is getting bigger and now it's taking him longer to cycle through it. Awesome. Now uh, let's talk about going back to jujitsu a little bit. One of the best piece of advice that, that you've learned along the way in jujitsu, especially when you look back, maybe the, the early days, that's things that you can share today with beginners. Uh, I don't know, something that uh, stand out to you. Uh, first of all, um, there's no way to not get a benefit from jujitsu if you just keep coming. That's all. The, the main trick is you just, you come and you don't stop coming. Um, one thing too, for me, and I'm, I'm sure you've had this experience, as you get older, you lose a little bit of it, but you're going to lose. It's part of life and it's part of jujitsu and it's part of learning. It's part of the process. You, you got to find a way to not see the loss as a bad thing to say, yes, I don't like losing. I want to win. But part of me getting to that point where I'm going to win most of my fights is losing in the process and having these experiences. The trick is to figure out what I did wrong and try never to do that same thing again. And a lot of guys get caught up in it. And I think also like going back to the police thing, a lot of police don't want to do it because when they come in, you know, you have these little kids kicking your ass and it's embarrassing mm -hmm. and you don't want to just say, okay, it's part of the process. I need to just suck it up and, and deal with this kid beating me and figure out how to beat him. So I, I think those are the two big factors. And I also think another thing, and, and when I started, we really didn't talk a lot about this. Now I think it's more known. But to find a style, to find a system, to find a way that complements your body type. So if you're tall and long or short, if you're skinny or if you're thick, uh, if you're aggressive, like really going after stuff, or if you're very defensive in nature, to find something that complements that. And then to find a guy who has a similar style that works for you and then try to incorporate those pieces into your game. And we both know that anything can work in jujitsu, but the truth is, you know, you can't just intermix pieces for a guy after he develops some type of game, right? So we talked about that in terms of like, you have a Ferrari, which is a great car. You have a Lamborghini, which is a great car, but you can't take the parts out of the Ferrari and put them in the Lamborghini and Lamborghini in the Ferrari, it won't work. Um, so to really develop a game based on how they think, how they feel, how they like it, and ultimately what their goal is, if their goal is MMA or street, or if their goal is Gi Jiu Jitsu or no Gi, uh, and really work on that specific thing. It should be able to cross over into other realms, but they should have a focal point based on those things. So uh, never quit, just keep coming in, even though you're getting beaten up, uh, to really have a focus on what your objective is, right? And to accept it, you're gonna lose. You're gonna have bad days and your life happens around you while you're doing jujitsu. You know, you, you're gonna have your work and things are gonna be good and things are gonna be bad and you're gonna feel good and bad physically. You're gonna get sick or you're gonna get an injury and you're gonna have to start again. And you have to accept that early on. And if you do, the process is not only easier, but it's more fun because you kind of understand where you're at in the cycle. I know what's coming, I'm on this end, I'm gonna get that on the other end. Um, and so for me, those, those are kind of the tricks that I would tell young guys coming in right now. Yeah. And what about for you, if we can, if we could give a piece of advice to the young Todd, when he was training in the nineties, something that would be like, yeah, I didn't do that because you just didn't know better, but you look back, you could have a little chat with him. Like, yo, yeah. this year, what do you say? Yeah. I, I the, first of all, I, I gotta say between Rodrigo Vaghi and Hicks and uh, 
I had great mentors, guys that really led me down the right path. So I, I have nothing to change there. But for me, one thing is to, I should have seen it more as a 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 year period versus like a one month or three month period. I was seeing things in, in very short windows. So I would tell myself to look, your, your goal isn't just this one moment. Your goal is across time to keep getting better. And some of that includes things that are not pleasant. Um, also, I think I would have spent more time, and I know this now because I'm older, I would have spent more time taking care of my injuries and spending more time stretching, warming up, doing things. Because now, as I get close to 50 years old, all the stuff I did before is now coming back to haunt me because all those little injuries got worse and worse and worse over time. And so actually I'm wearing this shirt. And by the way, they have a couple in Phoenix where you're at. So Restore is a place that does cryo and hyperbaric oxygen tanks and local cryo on, on joints. And they do like infrared saunas. So instead of, you know, kind of, okay, I'm just training hard and okay, just suck it up. I wouldn't have done that. I would now go back and say, train smart. Train smart, have a systematic approach to how you're doing it. Spend a lot of time stretching and, and, and warming up on the front end. Spend a lot of time stretching and cooling down on the back end and, and take breaks when you need them. Yes, train hard, but space out those breaks in the right way and do things that will help you. So when you're young, when I was young, I won't talk about you, but when I was young, I was dumb, running around, partying and chasing girls. And that didn't help me to recover. So maybe sure. instead of going out doing this as much, back off a little bit of that. and spend some time recovering, go do cryo or go do a stretching session or just go outside and work on your breathing, something for recovery. So those, those would be my main takeaways for myself if I was talking to my younger self. Cool, we're getting close to the end of the interview. So what do you got exciting going on that you can share with, with everyone? And then you can, I'll, I'll add the link to of your website and everything, but what do you got to share? Well, what's really cool right now for us is that our music components coming back. So music concerts are coming back. Uh -huh. We have a lot of very big clients that are going out on nice. tour. Uh, one of our clients, Nine Inch Nails, is getting ready to go out. Journey is getting ready to go out. The Eagles are going out. The beginning of next year, Tool is going out. Uh, so a lot of these activities are happening for us. We're coming back to life from COVID. I see a lot more gym openings uh, in different places where I'm at. We've been open, but uh, these things are great for me because if I start traveling with these entities, I need a jujitsu school to go to. And if the schools are closed down, that's not good. So a lot of stuff opening up, looking good, feeling good, man. I, I hope most of the people that are watching this took this time this last year to really improve themselves because yeah. we've got a, a year of slowing things down and, and not being able to do certain things. Hopefully they used it wisely. So for me, it's been, it's been a good year, man. Really good year. Right on. How about so, you? Man, I can't complain. Same thing. The school is open and I can complain. It's performing well. And now I have another business that I, I promote tournaments. So I've been doing that for, for 20 years nonstop. I've been promoting tournaments nonstop since 1998. And, and of course, every year getting more and more and more. But yeah, we paused for a year and a half. Um, since the last one was February last year. So now we're going to have our first one back in August. So excited to get this going on. So um, there's a big competition scene in Arizona that I'm very proud that I, that I helped to build starting in 2000 with just an in-house tournament with 40 people doing in-house tournaments for four years. And then to eventually start renting little venues and start getting... Um, a little bigger and stuff so that with the community growing so we have a lot 
Uh, and I, I'm, a, I'm a fan, I'm a fan of what competitions can do for you because I believe, I always mention here for everyone that is, yes, for everyone that is listening, that have listened to my spiel before, they know that I always mention jujitsu. Yes, it's a personal development tool. You don't need to compete in order to get the benefits of jujitsu. However, competition is a great way to amplify the power of this tool, you know, to be tested under pressure. How emotionally can you handle all that? So that is, so that is my, I try to inspire my students to compete now because of that, the personal development aspect. The competing, I already went through the phase of like, let's build the world champion. I, I, I already passed this, this phase. I'll help people as much as you can, but I love to like, just introduce competition to them. You do whatever you want with it, but people don't realize sometimes how much anxiety they have until they put in a situation like that. I'm like, oh, hello, you know? Yes, and you are forced to manage that anxiety, not by taking a pill, yeah. But by using your brain and calming down and breathing and understanding that it's normal. Look, I'm going to go in here and we're going to do these things. And it's just part of a process. And yes, I feel that I can use that for or against me. And yeah, I agree. I agree. Competent, you know, uh, to your point, one of the things is Rodrigo was really big on us competing in, in uh, gi, no gi and, and MMA. Uh, and the greatest takeaway for me is exactly your point. Like to just become okay with being in bad positions to just be become okay with feeling that stress, the butterflies, like, okay, this is just part of the process. This is normal and I can manage it. And you learn how to manage that. And I think that applies to all of your life. You start to learn how to manage the stress, the anxiety, the chaos that occurs from the outside because you, you deal with it on the inside first. Yes. And one of the things that I always talk with parents who are just starting like just for a select group of that are interested in competing and I kind of like I was starting to do a little work on the, on the side with them. And I tell the parents, like one of the biggest lessons that competition, especially jujitsu taught me is that you don't always get the outcome that you want anytime you want. I'm going to compete, I'm going to win. Well, it's not always like that, you know what I mean? And teach the kids young that you're not gonna win every time. You're not gonna get every job that you apply for. You're not gonna close every account that, you know, or whatever it's like accepting that not always things will go your way absolutely it's training for life isn't it because that's how life works it really is and so i feel that even i this is like a, a almost like a silly question but if you think about your martial arts career your your jiu-jitsu journey if you think about it okay let's compare jiu-jitsu my journey without any type of competition whatsoever just training and with for sure you'd know how to defend yourself no doubt you'd be confident but emotion the emotional growth it doesn't even compare no no because the thing is that i was nervous walking to the ring or the cage i was nervous in each fight like it was nervous you learn how to manage that. You learn how to assess yourself. You learn kind of what makes you feel that, what takes it away. You start to understand yourself and then you start to be okay with it. And you say, okay, cool. This is just part of the process. And I know if I eat this or drink this, it might change a little bit. If I look at this or I sit in the sun or if I breathe like this or, and you start to figure yourself out. And so I, I agree, competition was a huge benefit. And you're the first person actually that's brought that up to me that, that if I thought about myself knowing all the same stuff I know, but not having competed, what would be different? And it would be very different. Yeah. So, so thank you for that. That's a great point. I'm going to ask some yeah. other guys that, because for me, I wouldn't be the same person. 
I have one of my uh, one of my best friends, uh, Bruno Bassus. He uh, he's one of the most. He got a school in Texas. He's one of the most experienced guys. Uh, one of that I know. One of my most experienced friends has been competing nonstop since he's ten years old. He's like forty right now, like nonstop. He's he's a maniac. He just loves way too much competition. But a few years ago, um, we we're talking and about about like the same idea. And I mentioned he's like, yeah, jujitsu changed your life. I'm like, yeah, it did, but like competition really changed your life. If you look into it and you stop to think about it, it's true because if it's just the training, it's awesome and it's great. But adding that amplifier there, man, um, even, even uh, I was, you see people talking all the time, you know, giving the suggestion to people, man, try at least once just to see how you feel. You know what I mean? And now if you feel super anxious, do it again. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's that's the idea. Yeah. You know, so it comes with time. You know, so. it's a it's an exposure to a, a unique stress. And in in a way, the more that you have these little exposures, it's an inoculation, right? It doesn't mean it goes away completely, but it reduces the effect over time because you learn how to manage it and you you don't feel the same. And as you start to learn how to manage it and you don't feel that same level of nerves you calm down quicker and even easier. And, and you're absolutely right. You can be in the school and get a little bit of it from sparring, right? In the very beginning stages, but then you know everybody's game and then they're your good friends. And so it doesn't create that level of stress that competition does. And, and it, you're right, it's an awesome tool. The competition itself, regardless of whether you win or lose, yeah. or what your objective even is, or what you're trying to get to, the experience is a great exposure to stress and, and uh, exposure to who you are on the inside and learning how to manage it. I, I agree with you 100%. I see. Todd, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate your time. Awesome conversation. I hope thank people you, got Bruce some good takeaways. Take I'll add some of the links here and people can look you up your work. So I appreciate it, man. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. All right. Take care, guys. See you guys soon. Oos. We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, but the lesson doesn't end here. Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.